we are uh, we're continuing in Luke chapter 21, and this is a better served teaching message than it really is a, a preaching message, because it is some of the most interesting and complex of all passages that we have in the in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll pick up just where Bill had left off as the disciples were marveling at what was going on on the Temple Mount. And as they were up there, and there they were kind of giving to the work of this temple, to this temple that is described by Josephus in, in the uh, early centuries as, uh, right there in the first century, he writes, the outward face of the temple in its front wanted for nothing. And it was likely to surprise men's minds as to even of the rising of the sun, because it reflected back such a fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away as they would have done at the sun's own rays. It was because it was covered with plates of gold of great weight. And it was at the first rising of the sun where this phenomenon would occur, Josephus writes. But then he writes onward, but the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as those parts of it were not gilt, gilt as in um, gilden, golden, uh, they were exceedingly white. And of, uh, of this temple, there would have been the two major pillars in the front of 40 feet tall. That's, you know, eight stories tall, five stories tall, five stories tall. But here's the very interesting aspect of these pillars. They were carved of one block of granite. Forty feet tall. It was basically one of the wonders of the ancient world. Not, not one of the official ones, but, but clearly a wonder of the ancient world to come and behold this temple that had taken hundreds of years to complete, and it was now just being completed as we come upon this very scene where Jesus is on this temple mount where all are in wonder as they come as pilgrims to this temple. And Jesus, of course, then rearranges the whole idea of worth versus this temple versus the heart of a, of a young, of a, not of a young, but of a widow at this moment. And after having really discounted the temple itself, and really having set himself up against the temple himself, itself rather, Jesus now hears from his, from his disciples in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And again, if you remember what we just read about, you're like, Duh. Do you not listen to like a word that Jesus is saying here? But Jesus said, as they say this, Hey, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And is that the truth? Well, today, if you go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem... The reason that you see all of the Jews gathered around a very special place at the temple, which is known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, is because it's only this very bottom part, not of the Temple Mount, but this very bottom portion of one of the walls of Jerusalem where any of the original stones are left at all. What Jesus says here is in 
indeed the very case of what went down. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through this passage. We're going to try and take it as a whole, and I'll try to give a bit of a historical perspective on it. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I'm he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be afraid. These things are going to happen first, but the end will not come right away. And indeed, as we progress through Roman history, and there's quite a bit of turmoil, and at first it looks like some of that turmoil is squashed when Herod's own son is, is now made regent of the area. And then he dies quickly, and all of a sudden there's turmoil again. And then even in the Roman Empire... Nero himself rises to power. But in 58 AD, uh, as Nero rises, it's not too long after Nero's rise that he too kills himself. And then there's a succession of four quick emperors. And there's, there's really just pandemonium throughout the Roman Empire. And everybody's wondering in the insecurity of constant turnover of power in the Roman Empire, what is really happening here? And it's exactly as Jesus talks about. And you have this quick succession, even of different generals and emperors in this area of Palestine, two of which are named Vespasian and Titus. And Vespasian and Titus were not just emperors of the Roman Empire, they were also generals. And in 67 AD, first with Vespasian and then with his adopted son Titus as generals, they set themselves up as a siege army against the walls of Jerusalem. So keep that in mind as we read. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famine and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. And we, we see that even in Acts 11, Acts 12, of some of these very same things that are alluded to. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You will be bought, brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And, and by the way, by the time we get to 58 AD, it's the time where Paul is in Jerusalem. And we see all of these things happening, at least to Paul in the scriptures, just as Jesus describes here. And so you will bear testimony to me. Interestingly, the, the Greek of this passage is, and this will be your opportunity for testimony. That's, that's cool that, that hard times are not just hard times, but from a cosmic kingdom of God sense, when we're going through some sort of a travail and you're standing firm in your faith, you know what that is for you? It's not just a hard time. It becomes for you, this amazing badge of honor and point of inspiration, because for you, that becomes testimony, testimony to Jesus himself. But, verse 14, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom. Literally, I'll give you a mouth and a brain. I will give you a mouth and a brain that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, 
and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out and let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, as I keep reading, keep in mind that there are a variety of events that could be dashing through the minds of the audience. First and foremost would be the idea of the day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If you do even a cursory study of this throughout the Old Testament, you're overwhelmed because pretty much every prophet dedicates at least a significant portion of his prophecy on this very idea. The day of reckoning. The day where judgment will come upon his people. Not only do we have in the mind of this Temple Mount throng that's gathered to hear Jesus, in the back of their mind, the dreadful day of the Lord where suddenly God will, will bring his judgment and, and those who are righteous uh, into the great age to come, but also those who are unrighteous into their deep consequence. And, but, but on top of that, there's one other thing that would perhaps be in, in their mind. And that would be the second coming of, of Jesus. The ultimate arrival of the Messiah in the fullness of what they anticipate the Messiah to be. A conquering general who is going to be able to bring his might to set things right and usher in the age to come. So all of these things would be kind of dancing through the minds of the audience. And for us, it's a little bit confusing because we're not sure which of these is being alluded to. However, in Matthew and Mark, it's even more difficult because much more of this refers to a, look, a looking forward to the ultimate um, arrival of the second coming of Jesus, when for sure all history will be marked in a very clear way, as in this age and the age to come. We're still in the present age. The age to come is still upon us. That will be ushered in when the sky is rolled up as a scroll, as Isaiah says, and suddenly we'll, we'll, we'll behold the great and glorious day of the Lord. But let, let's, let's keep moving on here. Verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish, and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming in the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What are all these things? Everything from verse 5 until what we just read. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching in the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Let me start at the back, at what we just read, and I'll work my way back through some of these passages. How is it that on the Temple Mount, all throughout the ordeals that we've seen, all of the attacks that have been coming to Jesus, all of the um, kind of spy work that was being done to try to assassinate him, how is it that he stands so firm, so secure, all the time, every day? You know why? Because every night he went out to spend with his God. And every day he went out to do the will of God. And a man who has just come from the presence of God is a man who can stand before anything that men can throw at them. And even as we enter into each of our days, brothers, that's a great aspect of Jesus to imitate and to imitate well. Are you a man that has just come from the presence of God? If so, then I would imagine that your workplace ends up being so much more affected by the very power of God the more that we have come from the presence of God. But Jesus then right before this says, surely this generation will not pass away. This is kind of a a big idea here because... In in biblical times, a generation was how many years? 40 years. Today we think of generations as 20 years, but it was always, at this time, 40 years. How long did Saul reign as king? 40 years. 40 years. Excellent. How long long did did David reign as king? 40 years. Thank you for the math. Uh, How many years did, uh, did Moses spend in the desert? 40. Yeah, I mean, take it through. How many years did Israel spend in, in, in the desert before they reached the promised land? 40. Sure, you, you see this over and over and over again, this biblical epic of 40 years. What year did Jesus begin his ministry? 30 AD. And guess what year all of these events will be fulfilled? 70 A.D. And this is one of probably the most common themes among historians. And I'll read from one of them. It is no exaggeration to say that the fall of Jerusalem is the most significant national event in the history of the world. The fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. But there's a bigger implication for us 
in terms of the word of God. Because if this really did happen in 70 AD, and these words are penned by Luke, who also writes the book of Acts, and closes the book of Acts after, after having written the book of Luke, and we know that he's closed the book of Acts somewhere around 64 AD, and thus probably either around that same time or just slightly before having written the book of Luke. Well, then that means that he has written all of this before 70 AD. And the description of these accounts is spot on to what happened when Vespasian and, and, and later uh, Titus come up against Jerusalem in 67 to 70 AD. These are exactly the events. And not just that, but because the, uh, the Jerusalem Christians were forewarned about these events, and when they saw the armies coming in, what do you think those Jerusalem Christians did? They bailed out. Brave Sir Robin, they ran away. <laughs> that is exactly what they did is they got out while the getting was good. And why is that a big deal? Because from that point on, the rift between Christian and Jew was deepened to a chasm. And while there may have been overlap and there may have been working together, there may have been the strategy of going first to the synagogue, first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, that ended in 70 A.D., because it was at that point in 70 AD where the Jews looked at the Christians as unpatriotic, having abandoned the temple and abandoned the defense of the nation. And imagine that for ourselves as well. Wow. That if all, all of a sudden there, there, there was a group among us and you know what, the, you know what, guys, this, the, the, these, the, these crazy folks are going to come and they're going to try and take down the Hampton Roads church. But, but what if there really was a word of the Lord? I mean, there's a big what if there. But what if there was a word of the Lord and they said, Hey, when you see the El Caminos starting to circle the church building, know that that's a sign. And you run like a little baby crying all the way and you get out of there. Right? And, and you know, for those of us who are like, No, we're going to stay here. We're going to defend the building. We're not going to let them desecrate this place. Not that we care about a building so much. But, 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 and then we see you know, a large group go. What, what are we going to feel about those folks? Like, you traitors. You cowards. How dare you? We stood shoulder to shoulder, mano to mano, all along the way. And look what you did. You turned tail and you ran. That is the impression of all the Jerusalem Christians from 70 AD on. And it completed the rift, but it completed something else. It completed any means of temple sacrifice. But it also shows the grace of God because he allowed a 40-year overlap from the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus in 33, well, a 37-year overlap at this point, but, but a 37-year overlap of Jesus' sacrifice where there was continual sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because God so loved Jerusalem, so loved Israel, his special possession, all that the scriptures speak of are true. All that Jesus says is that I've come first to the lost sheep of Israel is truly played out. And 
chance after chance after chance they had given to them. And even this buffer from 30 to 70 AD for them to be able to still respond. But when their response became clear and stiff-necked and rejection, well then ultimately, what Jesus promised would happen when he came into the triumphal entry back in chapter 19, and when he, when he said even then what would happen to Jerusalem as it would fall, and then when he's on the Temple Mount and they remain stiff-necked, and he told them the parable of the vineyard, and he said, this vineyard is going to be taken from you, and it will be given to others. And so ultimately, the new covenant ends up being a covenant primarily populated by Gentiles rather than Jews. And the rift made so great in 70 AD as almost irreparable to, to many cases. And it is, it is the reason why that you, you do still see a pocket of Jews, historically speaking, but, but, but very few, and ultimately the, the greater population that eclipses it by far of the Gentiles themselves. But here's the other important thing, that if the Bible was written later than 70 AD, how many times do you think the Gospel writers would have pointed to the fact that the temple had been destroyed to show the fulfillment of Jesus' words? If the book of Hebrews was written after 70 AD, and all that goes on there of showing the sacrifices of the Old Testament that are worthless and becoming obsolete, not yet obsolete, what do you think instead the book of Hebrews would have said? about the entire cultic system of sacrifice present in the temple itself. It would have loved the opportunity and to say, I told you so. Who could have resisted? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the writer of Hebrews. Who could have resisted with all the material that they were concerned about with the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ? The book of Colossians and the great Christology and showing Jesus. Philippians and the great hymn. In, in chapter 2, how could all of these things have, have resisted to point out the fact that and here is the completion of all that was prophesied? But rather than that, it gives proof to us of the early dating of the Bible itself. And the fact that all these books were written prior to 70 A.D., Galatians may have been as early as 45 A.D. They were written by Paul while he was still alive. John is Michelle George. He died in 64 A.D. That Luke, likewise, would have written all of these events. Why is that encouraging? What? Because that means that the Bible predicted events claimed to be the word of God, and those events came true just as was predicted. Amen. That's huge. That's huge, and it's unique to the word of God because it, many books claim to be the Word of God, but books that claim to be the Word of God with predictive prophecy that are ironclad, well, that is unique to the Word of God. Amen. And it ought, for us, really kind of steal us to our resolve that I am going to live by this amazing book. That when you go into a Barnes & Noble, while they're still in business... <laughs> And you say to the clerk as you walk in, as they're standing near the nooks, hoping that somehow things will keep on going, they'll have a job. Can I help you? And you can say, you know what? I would like the only book in this store that is the Word of God. And if he or she says to you, well, I mean, 
That could be the Quran. That could be the Haggadah Gita. I mean, that could be. I mean, many many different books. You talking about the, the words of Confucius, the words of Muhammad, the words of Buddha. What well, what is it? You know what? None of those are the word of God. Not one of those is the word. Muhammad did not have the words of God. And you can say that with security, knowing that no, I want the only word of God. I want the Bible. And point me to that direction because the Bible is the real deal. It can be corroborated, not just by internal evidence, not just by old documents, but it can be corroborated by historical facts as well. That's why 70 AD is such a big deal. Because all these writers who wrote about it, wrote about it before it happened. And then all the writers who didn't write about it, prove the early dating of the Bible. Because they would have written about it. Specifically the book of Hebrews. And that means that the Bible and all that it speaks about cannot be simply attributed to a legend. That Jesus didn't grow up as a legend. You don't have enough time to create legendary material from a historical perspective. For example, Alexander the Great, in his uh, biographies that are written about him, biographies that are written about him 500 years later do not contain fantastical elements about him. But go 500 years later again, and then they appear. That's how long it took for these kind of you know, grandiose, heroic tales that are transcendent of kind of normal biographies to enter into the myth of Alexander the Great. And to have a book that is written 30 years, just 30 years after the events themselves, when everybody is still alive because the generation has not passed away, you cannot inject mythology on that kind of a scale. And this is, this is the, 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 the understanding of historians who understand historical writing, whether it be secular, religious, whatever it is, that they know that 30 years is not anywhere near enough time when everybody's still alive to be able to inject any sort of material like that. So not only do we take heart that these events really did happen, but we take heart that these events allow you to shudder in realizing, whoa, the Word of God is really the Word of God. But one last thing I think for us to to take note of in this passage too, is that it's also not just the day of the Lord. And by the way, this was the day of the Lord for the Jews. This was the day that the vineyard was taken from them. This was the day that they were destroyed. Josephus tells us that 1.1 million Jews were killed during this siege. When Jerusalem was taken down. This was the inflicted punishment brought upon them for their complete rejection of the God who so guided them so tenderly, held them in his arms as, as, a, as a nursing baby, guided them as he did a little ewe lamb. And of their continued rejection of all that he did for them and ultimately sending his own son for surely... They will respect my son, as Jesus tells us in the parable of the vineyard, that occurs just a few sentences or a few moments before this this, um, description that Jesus gives us here, that surely they will respect my son. And instead, they kill the son of God. What more can God do? And then ultimately, to make it clear, 
He gave them 40 years. An entire generation. And even after an entire generation, with miracle after miracle, with corroborating evidence after corroborating evidence from his ongoing messengers, the apostles, ultimately, even then, the Jews remain rejecting of God. And God ultimately rejects them. But I think the other thing for us to recognize is that this is a foretaste of the coming of Christ. And when Jesus says, you will see the Son of God coming on the clouds, well, for the Jews, they got a real peek at that. Because the Son of God coming on the clouds is not like, oh, this is so great. It is a fearsome day. Except for the few. Except for the elect. Except for those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And ultimately on that day when the sky does open up as a scroll and the trillions of angels come down if we can go by the number that we see in Revelation of the number of, of angels. And they come down and they gather you up and they bring you into deliverance as the world itself is then destroyed and recreated and Romans 8 is revealed and all of creation groaning for recreation is then realized and we enter back into a paradise able to dunk, enjoying life and live in large... Everybody else would have experienced the dreadful day of the Lord. That's a frightening idea. But Jesus don't play. And, and for us, evangelism is not just a nice idea. It's the only chance. Because when he comes back, there will be a reckoning. And when he comes back, the fullness of what this peak was for the Jews will be completely realized for all people. And my goodness, if, if, if this doesn't in, in some ways soften our hearts to the fact that, my goodness, thank you, God, that you allowed me to respond. But also, wow, do I not care about, about all others? Am I worried about am I being strategic enough or am I being careful enough who cares at this point? Brothers, we, we're God's plan A. Amen. Nobody's coming over the hill. We're it. And amazing as that is, we're it. But guess what? We got what it takes. We've been equipped. And Jesus has given all of this to us. But it is, it is coming our way. And, and when it does... It will not just be the, the, the destruction of the temple as it is. It will then be the, the final ushering in to the age to come. And paradise awaits. Scenes of bliss forever new rising in succession to our view. That's what comes next. But for any of you that may be here and you're kind of sitting on a fence here. Like, well, I think at some point I will. When Jesus comes back, it's not to give another chance. When Jesus comes back... That's it. But how about, that's it. There'll be no more kind of, oh, but you know, I get a special dispensate. That's it. That ought to sober every one of us into a time of, of, of real repentance, of preparing ourselves. Second Thessalonians talks a lot about really being pure and unblemished at the coming day of the Lord. First Peter does say, similar to here, it will come like a thief in the night. None of us is going to know. It could be 17 minutes from now, or it could be 170 years from now. We don't know. We, we will not know. It's not for us to know, but it is for us to, to heed what Jesus said. Watch and stay strong.
Watch and stay strong. But live our lives. And I've said this before. We are to live our lives in hopeful anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. What, what better way to ever remain vigilant, not out of fear, but out of beautiful anticipation of the age to come of which we will be a part, but also to keep us focused. It's very easy to get distracted by all the third soil, weird stuff of the world. Easy to get distracted by what Jesus says, that you don't get weighed down with, with the anxieties of life, because that day will come on you suddenly like a trap. Yeah, we all have our present anxieties, but my goodness, live every day, not for the here and now, but live every day for what it is that you've been reborn to as a destiny. And with that kind of focus, with coming from the presence of God, oh my goodness, what it is that every man here would be able to do day in and day out until the very day of the Lord. Let's grab each day. Let's live each day with that kind of anticipation, that kind of excitement, that kind of focus, that kind of sobriety, that kind of alertness. Amen. Amen. We're going to break it, break to our groups.